This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction by Arundhati Roy. In this series of electrifying essays, Arundhati Roy challenges us to reflect on the meaning of freedom in a world of growing authoritarianism. The essays include meditations on language, public as well as private, and on the role of fiction and alternative imaginations in these disturbing times. The pandemic, she says, is a portal between one world and another. For all the illness and devastation it has left in its wake, it is an invitation to the human race, an opportunity to imagine another world. Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction, by Arundhati Roy. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. No doubt, QAnon seems pretty weird, and it is indeed pretty damn terrifying. But also, I must admit, sort of entertaining. I read every one of Will Summers' newsletters, not only because understanding Q is key to understanding the present-day right, but also because their wild conspiracies make me chuckle. A morbidly fascinating cabinet of curiosities that perfectly exudes the bizarre and bad vibes of this dystopic moment. But QAnon is not as abnormal as we might like to think. Step back and consider that the past 40 years of American politics have revolved around hysterical, media-fed, mass bipartisan panics over predatory threats against American children, particularly sexual threats, Satanists, pedophile daycare owners, drugs, metal and rap music, immigrants, criminals, and, of course, missing and abducted children, from Aton Pates and Adam Walsh to Polly Klass and Jacob Wetterling. Those cases were real and horrible. But transmuted into mass media and politics, they fed a bipartisan panic that took off at the tail end of the 1970s and that was fast rendered into the unquestionable common sense that children were being abducted, gruesomely assaulted, and killed by strangers in just enormous numbers. This panic took flight under Reagan, intensified under Clinton's war on crime, and, by the time of the George W. Bush administration, had been folded into the politics of the permanent war on terror. As Bush said, quote, After the terror of September the 11th, many parents throughout America found themselves holding their children more closely. Unfortunately, as we work to help our children feel safer by fighting terror, America's children and parents are also facing a wave of horrible violence from twisted criminals in our own communities. And quote, just like we're hunting the terrorists down one at a time, we're hunting these predators down one at a time, too. In other words, I regret to inform you that the freak show that dominates present-day Trumpist conservatism is an all-American one with roots that are frighteningly mainstream and ordinary. Which is what I'm talking about today with my guest, 
historian Paul Renfro, the author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State. As I wrote in a recent Jacobin essay, and yes, I'm quoting from this for the second week in a row, entitled After 2020, There's No Going Back to the Old America, quote, Pizzagate, the 2016 election season conspiracy theory that Hillary Clinton and other liberal elites ran a pedophile ring out of a Washington, D.C. pizza shop, has evolved into QAnon, the still-spreading-like-wildfire Trump-era conspiracy theory that Trump is running a secret operation to round up liberal elite pedophiles. This is, believe it or not, a major feature of present-day American politics. One Q true believer is on track to win a U.S. House seat in Georgia. Recently, Trump praised the movement as people that love our country. A reporter asked him to clarify whether he supported this belief that you are secretly saving the world from this satanic cult of pedophiles and cannibals. Trump responded, is that supposed to be a bad thing? If I can help save the world from problems, I'm willing to do it. The failure of a right-wing remedy to cure the disease requires that the diagnosis and proposed treatment alike become ever more insane. Yet the tropes of Pizzagate aren't random. Panics over children's safety betray a terrible anxiety that an imagined nation of the past, barely hanging on in the embattled present, will not be reproduced into the future. Panics over reproduction have for decades animated anti-abortion, anti-crime, and anti-immigrant politics. As the sense that America doesn't have a future intensifies, the obsession over demonic threats to children will thrive. Climate chaos, bringing homes destroying fires, floods, and mass forced migration will make this dynamic unimaginably worse. Okay. Before we get the show moving, I wanted to let you know that the only reason you are listening to the show right now is because your fellow listeners support the podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. This is my beyond full-time job. My producer, Alex Lewis, is part-time job. It requires tons of paid work from Julia Rock and Zachary Nin, who manage the book club and send you books in the mail. And yet, we give every show away for free. We pay well nothing. Because our goal in doing this show is political. We are committed to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, to be able to listen to this. And so that means that I need those of you listeners who can afford to support The Dig to do so by making a small monthly contribution. We even have a left-wing book or books to send you in the mail as a thank you. One of those books is my own book, All American Nativism. So if you haven't yet, and yet you've been meaning to do so, please hit pause now and navigate your web browser to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. It'll only take a few minutes, and I appreciate it immensely. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay. Here is Paul Renfro, a professor of history at Florida State University. He is the co-editor of Growing Up America, Youth and Politics Since 1945, and the author of Stranger Danger, 
family values, childhood, and the American carceral state. Paul Renfro, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. The story you tell starts with the disappearance of a boy named Eitan Pates in 1979, New York, in Soho. Two years later, a child named Adam Walsh disappeared in Florida. And Julie Pates, Eitan's mother, encouraged Adam's father, John Walsh, to step up as an advocate. And Walsh, of course, went on to host America's Most Wanted. And he told the nation, quote, We will continue, Reve and I, to try to make people aware of the lack of concern for missing children. Reve added, quote, We all have to help. Don't wait until it happens to you. Or, as Julie Pats put it, quote, It can happen to anyone, anywhere, anytime. How did these singular horrors so quickly become iconic of a systematic national problem, a problem that in reality did not exist as such because, as you write, quote, kidnappings of children by strangers are extremely rare in the United States. In fact, quote, before the early 1980s, the isolated kidnapping or disappearance of a child did not regularly generate national interest or gesture toward a broader social problem. In other words, like discrete events do not automatically instantiate themselves as iconic of a larger pattern. How and why did these sympathetic parents of disappeared and murdered children make their personal tragedies into mass politics? And why did that resonate so powerfully in American society beginning in the late 70s? Yeah, so, you know, public fascination with, with kidnappings and particularly the kidnapping of, of children is not new. Um, obviously, in, in the United States or in America or elsewhere, you have obviously cases of, of Indian ki- uh, captivity narratives that are incredibly resonant and popular in the white American imagination um, for quite some time. And obviously that became kind of a, a, a site in which a lot of anxieties about uh, native quote-unquote savagery were articulated and it became kind of this cultural battleground on which settler colonialism was waged, the, the war of ideas with respect to settler colonialism. And later, um, and I detail some of this in the introduction, later ransom kidnappings became kind of the principal means by which people understood child kidnappings and most notably the case of Charlie Ross in the 1870s really captured public attention and was disseminated widely. News of of the case was disseminated widely. And that became the the frame through which Americans understood it. Uh, But this began to change in the 1970s, as you noted. Um, There were uh, rumblings concerning uh, parental kidnappings in the 1970s and a lot of individuals expressed concern over that. But I argue that the Aton Pate's case really marked this moment of a fracture. And that occurred, I think, for a variety of reasons. As you noted, there were other cases that perhaps could have 
um, elicited this amount of, of attention, and in many ways they did, uh, but they didn't necessarily generate a kind of con concerted, uh, discrete dialogue or discourse concerning missing children or missing and exploited children. And indeed, it's not really until 1981 that the term missing children comes to refer to this broad social problem or presumed social problem. And there's kind of a perfect storm that enabled this to, to take root at this moment. You have a convergence of factors that kind of each spoke to the presumed instability or the growing instability of the American family, and particularly the, the white heteronormative pronatal family, and obviously the child uh, on which that family hinged. Um, you have growing pervasive fear of crime, particularly in a place like New York City, uh, from which uh, Eitan Pates disappeared, uh, economic uncertainty and precarity, a lot of it kind of focused on the American family um, as economic restructuring took hold, neoliberalization took hold, and you see fiscal crises in places like New York City uh, and elsewhere. Uh, so this serves to kind of amplify or magnify a lot of these anxieties centered on the family, uh, diminished global standing uh, post-Vietnam, diminished faith in government in the wake of Watergate and uh, the Church Committee findings, and uh, crucially, uh, an emergent 24-hour news cycle, which is naturally kind of seeking these sorts of splashy cases uh, that are or could be of interest to a wide segment of the population. And most importantly, and I, I hesitate to use the backlash formulation because it is so problematic, but um, there are responses to um, the feminist movement, the LGBTQ movement, or at least the challenges that were perceived to be facing the family in light of those movements. So all of these phenomena, um, and I think the Pates case very much kind of exemplified a lot of these or was the site in which a lot of these factors um, was ex were expressed, these really created the ideal conditions for a moral panic or a sex panic or a moral panic with, with sexual uh, kind of dimensions to it. This is why this sort of panic and other panics really flare up and, and run rampant in, in the late 1970s and into the 80s. How did this all fit into that era's broader context of childhood safety panics over Satanism, over child sex abuse in daycares, over he heavy metal and then later rap music, and and also not, not just those things that are typically thought of as childhood safety panics, but also this is the period when the war on crime, the war on drugs, the war on immigrants were really getting into full swing, all of which focused on children's safety and this related anxiety over the demographic change that black and brown children represented. Right. Yeah. So it's just I think it is missing children or, or stranger danger is perhaps the most important or the most visible of a lot of these panics. But you see them everywhere in, in the 1980s and, and 1990s, and they take up a lot of uh, airtime on, on cable news and on you know, ABC, CBS and, and NBC nightly news programs. Um, these are all kind of moral concerns that, as you noted, are centered on the American family and, and the child. Um, so it's not just stranger danger, the notion that mostly white, telegenic children 
initially boys are increasingly um, under threat by perhaps individuals who were uh, increasingly mobilized or emboldened by sexual liberation. Uh, you also have yeah, these satanic panics that center on the daycare, which is obviously kind of a clear expression of, I think, anxieties concerning women exiting the household and, and entering the workforce, right, post-women's uh, liberation. And not to suggest that women weren't working beforehand, but this is obviously a more visible feature of the American um, landscape at this moment. There is a discourse of victims' rights, which come, becomes hegemonic with the rise of Reagan. He really articulates a lot of concerns uh, that victims and, and secondary victims, as Carrie Rentschler calls them, that they held. They were concerned that in the wake of the civil rights movements um, or the, the social movements of mid-century, that the criminal justice system was no longer responsive or no longer adequately responsive to the needs and demands of victims and instead were too interested in coddling uh, criminals. And you see this kind of uh, expressed again and again in their discussion of uh, cases like the Miranda case, uh, Gideon v. Wainwright and others. Basically, the argument is that law enforcement is being um, handcuffed, right? They are no longer able to uh, perform their duties. And as such, they're kind of coddling criminals. And that's not really their purpose. So victims are speaking up and Reagan and his uh, cronies are very much receptive to that and, and recognize the, the appeal or the potential resonance of that kind of politics. Concerns about underage drinking, drunk driving, this is obviously something that Reagan takes action on. And so there's concern, yes, that, that children, um, and I should say that this is all at least somewhat in response to the children's rights movement. Uh, and a growing sense that youth were becoming kind of unshackled or were no longer kind of tethered to their parents or were becoming too defiant and were basically in need of greater uh, institutional and social control. And discourses about runaways and uh, latchkey kids and, and juveniles, uh, that is juvenile delinquency, all of this kind of becomes uh, subsumed under the banner of, of missing children or missing and exploited children. So a lot of these concerns that had existed for quite some time, obviously concerns about juvenile delinquency, nothing new. Um, you see this very visibly in the 1950s. Uh, but this becomes uh, something that is on the radar screens of a lot of Americans and, and politicians and policymakers in the 1980s. Um, and just this context, I think, to answer your question, I think directly, hopefully, this context serves to empower people like John Walsh and Reve Walsh and uh, the Pateses and um, Noreen Gosh and John Gosh and others who basically um, point to the broader landscape and basically are articulating the fact that in their minds, um, the social fabric is, is ripping um, and a lot of this is kind of uh, being targeted or a lot of this uncertainty and a lot of this tumult is being uh, brought to bear on the American child and the American family. Some of the names and figures in your book, I clearly remember from my own childhood, and I'm 
37, not not the earlier disappearances, but Polly, Polly Class and John Benet Ramsey. This was pervasive in the news media in the 80s and 90s, and, and even through the aughts with the reality TV show To Catch a Predator on NBC. It was also made pervasive through this general circulation of images of missing children through all, all kinds of media, including milk cartons. Explain how pervasive, just pervasive this panic over missing children became and how, how it circulated through the society at the time. All of the circumstances that I'm discussing here led to the fact that or resulted in this almost this near unassailability of the the basic statistics. And I should note these statistics um, and the basic notion that, yes, children are being victimized in new ways or in uh, more pronounced ways. So these child safety crusaders are kicking around these really, really um exaggerated statistics. They're saying that 50,000 children each year are being abducted by strangers. Um, And of course, there's a very kind of sexual connotation to what they're saying, that these children are being used and abused and exploited. They are being kind of injected into or placed into these uh, elaborate child sex trafficking rings and, and the like. Um, So these really startling statistics, which of course are totally baseless um, because it's only really something like 100 or maybe even fewer um, children who are abducted by strangers in stereotypical child abductions, as the Department of Justice calls them, uh, in any given year in the United States. So for a country of over 300 million people, that's really not that many, not to diminish the significance of that or the potential trauma there, but still the the danger doesn't reside there in strangers, it resides in the family itself. Um, You know, the call is coming from inside the house, so to speak, right? Um, And so, but these statistics and the kind of emotionally resonant child-centered narratives and images that are circulated in support of these statistics and in support of this larger consensus or notion that children are under threat and, and child endangerment is, is on the rise, um, this kind of gives the entire movement, if you want to call it a movement, a certain kind of cachet and, yes, um, a kind of unassailability. And so I argue that this more or less became hegemonic for for a good time. And there are some statistics that I I use to kind of demonstrate this. Um, You know, by 1987, uh, in one poll, 76% of children, um, and this is a Roper poll, indicated that they were very concerned about kidnapping. The most common fear expressed in that poll. Uh, There's another poll also in 1987 Uh, that noted that about half of uh, fifth graders from the Midwest uh, ranked someone grabbing them, excuse me, someone grabbing them as their primary concern. And fully 44% of them said that it was likely or highly likely that they would become missing children. So this is something that filtered down to to children themselves. They very much internalized this logic of stranger danger. Um, I grew up with it most certainly in in the late 80s and into the 1990s. You know, the the notion that you would speak to a stranger was just anathema. It was it was not it was just not something that you even entertained. My mom told me not to talk to strangers. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, strangers. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what you were supposed to say to a stranger. Oh, yes, they, yes. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. talk to you, <laughs> including in T on. And you saw that you saw children saying that on TV all the time as well. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I remember, I mean, this is probably when I was in elementary school or even middle school, you know, answering the phone. And I was to behave as if my mother, if I was alone in the house, even if I were, you know, uh, if I was 12 or 13, I was supposed to say, yes, my mother is in the shower or she can't come to the phone right now, but she's she's here. You know, don't come and kidnap me, um, essentially. So, you know, all those things become, I think, so deeply ingrained and so deeply embedded uh, in people who grew up around this time uh, that, you know, all these narratives are just so uh, they're just in the ether. You know, there there is this ambient sense that everybody kind of knows about this. And I even though I think a lot of people are beginning to recognize or have recognized that it really isn't that likely that a child is going to be abducted by a stranger, um, there are still certain precautions that are deemed normative and commonsensical. And if you violate these, then you are somehow a, a really awful parent. And I think this all kind of ties back to, to this moment. You said it was hegemonic, meaning that it wasn't the subject of debate so much as the near universal premise of any debate. And, and the media played just a huge role. At the risk of being naive, how was it that when like ABC World News Tonight said that Pates was emblematic of, quote, the growing problem of missing children, how was it that so few bothered to fact check that and determine that it, there was no such growing problem? Well, it's not unlike, I think, what's happening now with with QAnon or maybe more broadly, the kind of discourse concerning child sex trafficking or human trafficking, very few people want to be on record saying uh, this is not that big of a problem or it's not being um, portrayed in the way that it actually exists or this is being misconstrued and, and abused as an issue. So I think there was tremendous um, pressure not to quibble with these statistics, which were, yeah, on, on their face, ridiculous. I think that even as the statistics kind of underpinning a lot of this initial fervor uh, or or panic, as they begin to dissipate or as people begin to problematize it, and for instance, the Denver Post in, I believe, 1985 or 1986 actually wins a Pulitzer Prize for reporting on this uh, and noting, yes, this isn't really uh, as big of an issue as people are making it out to be. Um, even if people acknowledge that, they nevertheless say and justify a lot of their activities or a lot of their rhetoric by saying, well, one child is too many. And thus, we need to kind of mobilize all of our resources and construct this really gaudy sort of uh, daunting apparatus to, to kind of monitor our children and to punish those who ostensibly wish them harm, even though the threat, again, is most likely to come from inside the house or from an acquaintance rather than uh, from some, uh, some stranger who was, you know, deemed kind of nefarious and, and predatory. This image of endangered childhood that you write that circulates so widely in the media and just throughout society in general really begins with Aidan Pates and the circulation of really high quality photographs of him taken by his photographer father. And you write about how the innocent image contains the seeds of its destruction in that it sort of functions to, to suggest the threat of its own violation. 
You write, quote, the tension between widely disseminated pictures of innocence, like those depicting Eitan, and the nefarious forces that putatively threaten the innocence displayed therein motored the 1980s child safety campaign. Explain the role these images played, particularly this, this weird way that people projected sexuality onto them, something that became, I think, just grotesquely clear. You don't write a lot about, you don't really write in depth about this, but as far as I recall, became grotesquely clear in the public obsession with John JonBenet Ramsey's case. Yeah, it almost, I mean, it was at once kind of obvious or explicit. And at the same time, it was something that people didn't necessarily talk about openly. They they kind of, the suggestion was, of course, this is what happened to John Bonet Ramsey. Of course, this is what happened to Aton Pate. And yeah, the, the images of Pates, I think they were so vivid and so, so beautiful um, because his father was uh, and, and remains a professional photographer. Uh, and they were very much ready for, for prime time. So there's this bevy uh, of, Im- of images that different news organizations can easily kind of deploy. And, you know, police departments and, and other individuals who are seeking or looking for Aton, who, who went missing in May of 1979. So the, the kind of tension therein, I think, it leads people to think that they're, or to kind of imagine precisely what sort of uh, torture or what sort of abuse might have um, been executed on, or you know that that Aton Pates or any of these other children might have endured. So there's also the fact that these were initially not confirmed murders, but rather disappearances, disappearances accompanied by these massive, high-profile, grieving parent-led search campaigns, creating this like state of uncertainty that pushed the public to use their imaginations, staring at these photos every day to fill in the enormous blanks with every possible horror. Right. And there's uh, an added kind of layer of of mystery there. Um, It uh, enables people to kind of speculate exactly what happened. There's no finality. There's no conclusion. um, There's no resolution to any of this. So Pates, I think, because he was taken from New York and because people could very clearly kind of comment on just how photogenic he was, there was this assumption that this must have been perpetrated by gay men. And I argue that at least initially that was unstated um, there. But nevertheless, you know, you have NYPD and other officials uh, looking for, uh, I think, uh, known sexual predators or something uh, along those lines. You know, they there are reports that indicate that they are looking for people who might have had a sexual motive, uh, and that's kind of the the operating assumption. But it isn't until this raid on a cottage that is associated with or allegedly associated with the North American Man Boy Love Association or NAMBLA, in which authorities discovered a photo of a boy who ostensibly resembled Aton, uh, that's the moment at which uh, people really begin to suspect out in the open, and this, this becomes tabloid fodder, uh, they begin to suspect quite explicitly that this is kind of what happened uh, to to Aton. And of course, this is completely unfounded. The picture was taken uh, years before Aton was even born. Uh, but that association causes a rift or exacerbates this rift in the New York uh, LGBTQ movement. There are folks who are trying to disassociate themselves 
from uh, Nambla uh, and questions of man-boy love. At the same time, they are beginning to or, or trying to um, use this incident to argue that um, the notion that gay men are pedophiles is toxic and it needs to be addressed Nevertheless, they're kind of distancing themselves and saying, we are not like that. This is not an issue. This kind of intergenerational love um, has no place in the gay rights movement. And I argue that this kind of suggests or points toward the growing kind of mainstreaming of the LGBTQ movement uh, and its distancing or, or removal from its more kind of radical uh, roots premised on, on sexual liberation. Homophobia was central to the panic, in part because it fits so neatly into the era's powerful anti-gay movement, which above all really emphasized the danger posed by gay men having access to young boys. That was the framing. And it's hard to overstate just how homophobic American society was at the time. And as you point out, pedophilia and pederasty become this focus from the get-go, even where there was no evidence at all of sexual assault. How did the the specter of pedophiliac gay men emerge as a folk villain, and how did that in turn fit with this broader reaction against loosened post sixties cultural and sexual mores? Yeah, and this is you know the the notion of gay men as sexually deviant and predatory has really deep roots, uh, but it really becomes a feature of post World War II society on account of the hardening or solidifying closet uh, in that moment and the sexual psychopath panic that um, really erupted in the 1930s, but which persisted really through the 1960s, uh, it's centered on mostly gay men uh, or men who were interested in seeking sex with other men. And the notion that children were in danger, uh, it wasn't exclusively uh, focused on this discourse was not exclusively focused on on boys being subject to this kind of victimization, uh, but in many ways, it, it or in many instances, it did take that form. Uh, you have very famous uh, case in Sioux City, Iowa, in which a lot of men who were uh, ostensibly seeking sex with other men uh, were kind of um, caught up in this ring and, and understood. Uh, or assumed to be responsible for murdering a young boy there. Uh, And you have other instances where this kind of panic about gay men's innate predatory impulses, this is mobilizing uh, action against uh, gay men or any sort of activism uh, taken on their behalf. And this erupts in the same context that I'm talking about here or writing about here, I think very clearly with with the Anita Bryant-led Save Our Children movement. Uh, And of course, that phrase has particular resonance today uh, as people are, again, kind of using that to uh, petition for um, a greater attention to child victimization or child endangerment. Um, So Anita Bryant's argument is not, she definitely does kind of talk about, if I recall correctly, the notion of access and gay men getting access through schools and other means to boys. But the the kind of mechanism that she's most concerned about or that she deploys in rhetoric is the notion of recruitment, uh, the idea that gay men specifically can't reproduce 
and therefore they need to recruit children into their gay cabals or their you know homosexual rings and that is quite clearly uh, kind of a, an expression of anxieties concerning the family or at least tangentially related to the family you know there's a, a quite a clear kind of crisis of of reproduction there but it also i think you know just a few years later begins to shape the ways in which people are perceiving of a number of these cases that I talk about in the book, uh, beginning with the Aton Pates case. Uh, New York is obviously this, uh, if not the center, then uh, one of the centers of, of gay activity in this moment. There is a great deal of speculation about the ways in which uh, the Atlanta missing and murdered uh, were perhaps recruited or voluntarily entered into gay sex rings. Uh, it's, again, mostly uh, males who are abducted and slain there. Uh, there's also similar speculation in Iowa with the uh, paperboy cases there um, with Johnny Gosh and um, Eugene Martin and the Jacob Wetterling case also, which leads to the um, Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offenders Act, I think is the full name. Um, it's a very long one. That's part of the crime bill. Um, but you know, from the get-go, a lot of these, even though they're not in the end proven to, to have anything to do with sexual predation or, or pedophilia or pederasty, uh, this is the assumption and, and that specter, uh, especially in, in the wake of gay liberation and these concerns about the family, uh, the, this is the operating assumption. This is the assumption that a lot of people uh, hold. The initial centering of missing boys rather than missing girls reflect this pervasive homophobia. You write, quote, boys were the child victims most commonly featured in press accounts during the late 1970s and early 1980s stranger danger scare. But the gender dynamics of child safety narratives changed in the 1990s when cases involving girls began to attract significant media and political attention. And I should add that even adult women were infantilized and folded into this, some of whom were not even victims. Runaway Bride, Jennifer Wilbanks, or Private Jessica Lynch's staged rescue in Iraq. Why this shift? Did Aton Pates and Polly Class represent something different in American political culture? And was that difference the fact that the politics around homophobia were changing? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with that, where not to suggest that those sorts of scares no longer happened after the 1980s, but perhaps the the primary concerns or panics related to, to homophobia or related to, to gay men specifically, I should say, uh, had less to do with predation, uh, even though those themes are obviously recurring and, and um, have not been eliminated. Uh, but perhaps, you know, the, the rise of HIV AIDS, uh, the visibility of, of AIDS um, might have had something to do with it. It might also have something to do with the gradual mainstreaming um, as I noted, of the gay rights movement and their increasing attachment to the Democratic Party and thus their kind of uh, increasing credibility or, or uh, legitimacy as uh, a political class that might have led to um, this kind of undercutting of openly homophobic rhetoric. I think it has something to do with the changing nature of the feminist movement or changing understandings of feminism, 
the proximity of the uh, initial kind of cases to the feminist struggles of, of the 60s and 70s meant that girls had at least somewhat lost their um, cachet as innocent victims or as your paradigmatic victim. And it isn't until the growth of, of post-feminism and the idea that women could now kind of voluntarily choose to be protected by a man and the also uh, the, the consolidation of carceral feminism, um, the feminisms, uh, the feminist movements increasing reliance on, on criminal uh, mechanisms or, or criminal justice mechanisms to achieve their goals. This might have enabled girlhood innocence to kind of regain some of its appeal, its allure. And this, I think, led to the explosion of such cases in the 1990s and 2000s in which white girls and, yes, white women who are infantilized, understood to be victims, understood to be helpless, um, these cases generate a great deal of attention uh, and I think I list almost all of them or as many as I could find in the book. And these are incredibly, these are incredibly popular cases. Uh, John A. Ramsey, Polly Class, um, yes, the, the Runaway Bride, uh, Natalie Holloway. You know, all of these cases of, of, yes, photogenic, telegenic girls or young women, or not even that young of women, uh, they become kind of the, the site uh, or the, the subject of, of this energy. Pivoting to the present for a moment, I imagine a lot of my listeners right now are wondering how this sort, whether and how this sort of history informed the homophobic smear against Massachusetts progressive candidate Alex Morse. What, what do you make of that incident and how homophobic tropes about gay men preying on on boys intersected with this this longer running construction of innocent, fragile childhood, and also the way that this version of extended childhood is is classed, whereby university students remain kids while working class youth get treated like adults. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, Paula Fass has written, she's a historian of childhood, has written about what she calls the end of American innocence, the idea that the boundaries of childhood are being pushed further and further. Uh, I'm not sure that's the most um, historically sound argument, but it is something that people are arguing and they they think that perhaps the the boundaries of childhood or the the notion of children as I guess anyone under 18 it's beginning to shift um, and and college is being understood the the prototypical t- college years those are beginning to be understood as an extension of childhood or part of one's childhood um, or their their and I would say for certain milieus even into well into the 20s. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, the kind of young professional discourse, right, especially in certain cities, the assumption is that, yes, this is kind of an extension of one's college years and, you know, you, you work hard and you play hard, I guess. So that's kind of their, yes. But it is classed, as you noted, and it is racialized in particular ways. You know, obviously, children of color do not get those same benefits, so they're not understood to be children in the same way. Indeed, they may be tried as adults in court. <laughs> exactly. They're criminalized um, or you know, shot um, and killed by police in the case of Tamir Rice and, and others, um, countless others. So yes, this I think that discourse of, of college 
age. And I do have some colleagues who still refer to their students as kids. And I obviously find that kind of problematic, but at the same time, there is some truth to it in that there is this enduring attachment to one's family, one's, one's parents, kind of in the, the economic sense, right? As increasingly more individuals are moving back in with their parents just for, for economic uh, reasons, obviously, uh, because of you know the, the implosion of the economy. But in the Morse instance, um, yes, it's, if I recall correctly, I mean, white youth, uh, white college-age youth who are more or less kind of smearing an individual who is openly gay and who is using, I believe, Tinder, right, in, by all accounts, completely innocuous ways. Uh, he is not using this to, to groom children uh, or groom even college-age individuals, right? Um, he's also not a professor uh, with any kind of institutional um, support uh, or kind of... Uh, or like supervisory power. Exactly. Supervisory power or the, the appointment is not uh, permanent, right? It's very much a temporary position. And we can, you know, um, touch on the casualization of... of of uh, academic labor as kind of one um, way in which this is kind of understood. But, you know, he's not grooming his own students. He is not sleeping with his own students. But that became the discourse and that became the angle that the Massachusetts Democratic Party and the college Democrats at UMass Amherst, uh, that's the angle that they decided to take. I would argue, and I think, I mean, I hope you would agree that this is likely because of the enduring appeal of that notion of, of gay men as predatory. So that's, even though the case didn't, and Joseph Fischel and others have, you know, debunked this and kind of, uh, or poked holes in the, the initial story, uh, because there was no real there there, there was no real meat, there were these really vague terms being tossed around, you know, he made people feel uncomfortable. Even before it was disclosed that it was a hit job, there was no there Exactly. There. That exactly. was what was yes. really... I mean, like flooring. <laughs> yeah. And it was kind of galling to see a lot of academics. And I understand there, there are concerns and there are uh, anxieties about different power dynamics that exist in the academy. Um, and yes, the, the notion of, you know, someone preying on a student, especially if they have supervisory power and can kind of hold their grades over them, that is most certainly troubling, but that's not what right. happened here. Um, and there, it was almost uniformly, if I recall correctly, people who were styled as, as cis and, and straight uh, who were making these judgments on the gay community, basically, and not understanding or acknowledging the fact that oftentimes these sorts of intergenerational relationships were necessary for survival uh, for a lot of LGBTQ youth. Um, and, you know, you had a lot of people in the queer community coming out and saying, this is actually, you know, not necessarily bad. And age is not the only axis of oppression in the sexual realm. You know, um, yes, if you want to examine all of these different power asymmetries, that's fine. But to suggest that this is the site of oppression, while neglecting the fact that there are, you know, class imbalances, there are racial imbalances, 
there is always going to be a power asymmetry within a relationship. So to suggest that, you know, Morse is somehow a predator, and, and that was most certainly how it was being framed. And this perhaps had at least some impact on the result. You know, that that's incredibly disconcerting. And it suggests that, um, and I think we've maybe been gesturing to this, that there is, uh, there are these residual effects of, of the sex panics of the 80s and 90s. Uh, that continue to shape American politics, whether it's QAnon, whether it's the Alex Morse incident or, or saga, or even this um, kerfuffle over uh, cuties on, on Netflix, right? This concern about children being depicted in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, and, and returning to the, the 80s, pornography was was key to this panic. Ray, Reagan's attorney general, Edwin Meese III, mounted this huge crusade against smut. But at first blush, it's not clear what that has to do with child safety. How did this this anti-porno politics fit into child protection politics, given that this was adult pornography? How is adult pornography framed as somehow as a, as a pedophiliac threat to children? Well, I mean, on uh, the face, I mean, it seems like it would be about adult pornography. And that, you know, for all intents and purposes, is kind of what characterizes or defines the the pornography industry uh, then and now, you know, child pornography was and remains illegal, but child pornography becomes the emphasis of the Mies Commission. There's a great book by Witt Strub uh, called Perversion for Profit that talks a lot about the, the Mies Commission and the fact that something like half of its recommendations or half of its bullet points or what have you in the report focused on child pornography and in that way serve to to really, I think, blow this out of proportion to to make it seem as if child pornography was a much larger social problem than it actually was or was much more pervasive than it actually was. And that, I think, fit quite seamlessly with this larger discussion of, of child exploitation or victimization, the the sorts of narratives that the Mies Commission and similar anti-porn crusaders uh, are implementing uh, dovetail really neatly with this notion that there are strangers emboldened by sexual liberation or emboldened by the social movements of the mid-century. Uh, they're emboldened to, to snatch children, to kind of place them into these sex trafficking rings. So that is kind of the, I think, the, the crux of, of the Mies Commission, even though there is very little evidence to suggest that any of this is as grave of an issue as Mies and others would would have you think. And this is an issue where certain currents of feminism and the religious right coincided. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are very strange bedfellows here uh, with, yes, the feminist movement, um, or at least segments of it. Some are, uh, some members of the movement are uh, vehemently opposed to, to pornography. They view it as a site of a, oppression uh, for women specifically. And yeah, the Christian right, uh, the religious right, which is ascendant in, in the 1980s, not new, but definitely ascendant. Uh, they they find um, alliances here or build alliances that are seemingly deeply problematic or it would seem as if these forces have nothing in common, but they work together on, on this matter uh, and other matters. And, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that some of this kind of leads to a growing or uh, more emboldened carceral feminist 
streak that does culminate or, or at least has one major consequence in the, the 1994 crime bill and the Violence Against Women Act uh, that was embedded therein. A, a big part of what happened under Reagan, speaking of the carceral state, is that this all not only made youth newly vulnerable to crime, but also newly criminal or newly potentially criminals. And the racialized aspect of this won't surprise listeners. White youth were made into the iconic victims, while, while black and Latino youth became the iconic potential super predator criminals. How did these two opposite images of American childhood mutually constitute one another? What does that seemingly contradictory portrayal of childhood reflect about the politics of that era? Yeah, so, I mean, as we noted earlier, this is a moment in which officials, policymakers, parents are concerned about the state of American childhood and the fact that children are kind of unshackled or they have been unshackled and new modes of control uh, need to be uh, implemented. But the modes of control, social and institutional control that the Reagan administration and child safety crusaders seek uh, differ based on class designations, uh, racial designations, and you know the this should not be surprising to uh, listeners. Um, it's not unlike what Matt Lasseter talks about and others talk about in the depiction of, let's say, white young drug users as victims and those who are ostensibly pushing those drugs. They are the aggressors. They are. Uh, the predators, and they are the ones who need to be dealt with in um, very harsh ways. Meanwhile, the white youth need to be dealt with with hid, uh, kid gloves and the, the therapeutic state or the, the rehabilitative state. Um, so this is... And any, and any kind of moral panic requires this like folk victim and folk villain. And of course, in American political economy that's heavily racialized and classed. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, I argue that in the Reagan years, you have the forerunner to or the precursor to the super predator. That's not a term that people are, are using yet that really explodes in the 1990s. But there are terms like sexually, or excuse me, um, uh, violent predators or... Um, the concern here is with the serious offender or the chronic offender, and there are kind of particular assumptions that I think are embedded within that term. And people like Al Regnery, Alfred Regnery, who is this um, conservative scion, he is the head of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention for a time under Reagan, and he very much leans into this notion that certain children or juveniles or delinquents need to be brought to heel, to use Hillary Clinton's phrase, um, in, in the kind of super predator age. Uh, but he is saying that essentially, you know, the missing children crisis or the stranger danger crisis has revealed the fact that a lot of children are, or youth are outside of any form of social or institutional control, and this needs to be rectified. Uh, he's pointing specifically at the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, which formed or established the, the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. He's saying that this is indicative of this kind of spirit of youth liberation, and it's something that needs to be curbed and curtailed. 
it needs to, uh, or the United States or the, the, the federal government specifically, needs to prevent uh, runaways from feeling emboldened or feeling as if they can um, escape abusive situations in, in the domestic sphere. And that, you know, is one huge contributing factor to, to why runaways uh, actually leave the home um, to escape abuse. But for Regnery and for Reagan and for others kind of in this um, in this mold, they feel that the, the home is is obviously the kind of sanctuary and the outside world is is dangerous in no small part because the outside world contains uh, juveniles who are bad. You know, you have good kids and bad kids. Good kids need to be in their home with their family. And of course, good kids has a particular uh, kind of connotation. Uh, there's a, obviously a racialized sort of component to it and a, and a class uh, component to it. And bad kids uh, need to be dealt with by being incarcerated, essentially. So that is exactly what Regnery sets out to do. He does this or seeks to do this in a number of ways, either by defunding or abolishing the Office of Juvenile Justice um, and Delinquency Prevention, uh, or you know, defunding uh, certain, certain dimensions of it or components of it or by kind of funneling funding to really, really dubious social conservative causes. Um, like a $734,371 grant for a study exploring how Playboy, Hustler, and Penthouse magazines depicted children through cartoons and photographs. Exactly. And, and that kind of, I think, ties back to your last question about child pornography and this <laughs> notion that, yes, um, you know, the outside world is only threatening to children. Um, so he's funneling or trying to funnel. And Arlen Specter, sorry, Senator Arlen Specter responds, quote, I have read those magazines myself. See, I... We have had them at these hearings, and I have never seen a picture of a child being the victim of a crime actually appearing in the magazines. So I wanted to make a comment in the book about how, yeah, he no doubt um, read these magazines for you know research purposes um but my editor said i shouldn't say that um yeah it, it was funny it was funny enough on the yeah page. yeah <laughs> um yeah so regnery is trying to do that um and he ultimately fails in all of these ways you know there are actually some checks on on his power and people are kind of skeptical of what he's doing at the ojjdp um yeah people like Arlen Specter are kind of, um, you know, concerned that he really doesn't want to um, pursue the the founding goals of the OJJDP. He is really kind of a wild card and 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 um, acting sort of. He's a real nut. Oh yeah, his, yeah. His, I mean, Regnery's wife, while he was running for district attorney in Madison, Wisconsin, made up this incredibly outlandish, entirely false story about being brutally attacked by two strange men. Like that did not. The police determined did not. Happened. Yeah, and she she cut herself. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know how many times, seventy times or something. She had all these different marks on her, uh, and none were but more she than clearly skin deep, poked herself with a exactly, needle. Exactly right, and and I think it kind of speaks to or reflects Regnery's kind of obsession with this sort of thing. I mean, he he has to kind of orchestrate this sort of attack, uh, but he's long been obsessed with this sort of thing, you know, this, the, the notion of kind of marauding black or brown predators and, and lily white individuals who are 
always victimized by this sort of thing. And he continues to write, I think, today uh, for for Breitbart. And, and his headlines are, you know, every bit as, um, as dreadful as you might expect. But, um, you know, he has a long history of, of doing just this. And, you know, when he talks about juvenile justice uh, or juvenile delinquency, quote unquote, I mean, he is he's deploying these what he calls profiles in carnage, you know, these children who don't deserve any sympathy. And who knows if these children even exist, right? He's just kind of uh, painting these portraits of, of individuals who are remorseless, who are cold and calculating and are, are children, you know, are 12 or 14 years old, but are, you know, these vicious criminals and they need to be brought to heel. And I think that very much kind of colors his viewpoint or, or his perspective on this sort of thing and, and how he goes about running the OJGDP. And I think it also provides a lot of insight into how a lot of people who are concerned about crime, you know, quote unquote crime, imagine these sorts of things. What is that conflation of everything from stranger abductions to to runaways reveal about the continuity between, on the one hand, the heteropatriarchal white dual parent family, and on the other hand, the carceral state as these institutions to control so many different sorts of youth out of adult control? And what is revealed as a result, see these relationships between private and public power, between law and order and family values, between so-called social issues on the one hand and the carceral and security state on the other. Yeah, I think the narrative or the imagining or deployment of the family is incredibly potent and can serve almost every purpose, political purpose, um, the family and the child. And there are queer theorists who've written about this, uh, Lee Edelman, for one, who talks about basically the fact that all politics revolve around the future and around the child. And that can be very problematic. Uh, it can be very pernicious, especially for folks who maybe aren't organizing their politics around procreation or around the pronatal family. So specifically kind of queer radicals who are looking to other kinship ties or other um, ways in which you might organize a society. So I think the carceral state, especially, I mean, in the 80s and into the 90s, um, a lot of the justification for different measures can be tied back to the notion of this paradigmatic victim as particularly vulnerable in this moment, um, however people are imagining it. And so I think when you have someone like Regnery who might provide kind of an extreme example, he, he nevertheless, I think, as I noted, is uh, providing a window onto a worldview that suggests that the home is safe, the outside world is, is not safe. And whether you can kind of root that in the Cold War period, this kind of, um, or the early Cold War period, this kind of uh, white political sensibility specifically, or white middle class political sensibility that really was concerned with external threats, uh, not just in the form of the Soviet Union, but also in the form of um, communist subversion domestically or the civil rights movement and the potential infiltration of communists into the, the civil rights movement or really any other such sort of concern. Uh, I don't know if that's kind of the, the 
not necessarily the origin point, but um, you know, one precursor to this. That provides, I think, tremendous uh, justification for buildup of, of the carceral states. The notion that the family is uniquely uh, vulnerable at this particular moment. And a lot of that, I mean, there is a, a, a grain of truth to some of it in that the family did at this moment face new economic pressures. Um, there are concerns. And you, you referenced a crisis in in, to use Marxist feminist language, you referenced sort of a, a crisis in social reproduction, but a displaced onto these panels. Sure, yeah. So the or expressed through, you know, um, yeah. So the the Fordist compact kind of withers away, you know, with neoliberalization, with outsourcing, and um, as the feminist movement, you know, rightly so, and the civil rights movement are placing new pressures on the workplace. You know, in the wake of deindustrialization, uh, that compact begins to um, to to fragment. Uh, and of course, I mean, there are, there's a whole literature on that. Uh, Melinda Cooper, um, I think, has a really sharp um, analysis of of that of you know family values as this governing frame, as a lot of government responsibility is being offloaded onto the family. The family becomes this site uh, through which um, all politics uh, is understood. And yet it is not being supported, perhaps, in the way that um, one might suggest or one might think, uh, just based on uh, the discourse that uh, is surrounding uh, everybody. Um, Meaning the family is everywhere, and yet the the kind of material supports that uh, bolster the family for quite some time are nowhere to be found or are, are not as robust as they once were. Uh, but with, yeah, I think the missing children, to kind of get to the, the heart of your question, I hope, there's this tendency to just conflate every potential crisis that faces the child or the family under, I think, the umbrella of either child safety or missing children or juvenile justice. Um, so that becomes, there's a kind of, this becomes a very wide umbrella under which so much can be situated. And that can at once make a politics, or on one hand, make one's politics incoherent. On the other hand, it could also make it potent and ensure that more people are gravitating toward that kind of politics. So I think that there's a general sense that the families in crisis in the 80s and the 90s, kind of stemming from the convulsions of the 60s and 70s, uh, and that the child is also particularly vulnerable uh, so that becomes, I think, a mode uh, or a frame through which many Americans understand politics at that moment. Um, and what wins out, I think, and I imagine you would agree, is governing through crime, as, as Jonathan Simon puts it. Basically, all crises, all issues are understood um, or the solutions to them are understood to be carceral in nature. You got to lock up the issue. Most definitely. Yeah. And you have a lot of fascinating material on this, including from uh, Bill Clinton's 1994 State of the Union address where he he places this all, this fear of crime in general and threats to youth in particular, in a geopolitical context. He says, quote, while Americans are more secure from threats abroad, we all know that in many ways we are less secure from threats here at home. Every day, the national peace is shattered by crime. In Petaluma, California, 
an innocent slumber party gives way to agonizing tragedy for the family of Polly Class. This, this is something I've written about in terms of the war on immigrants and crime, but how did the end of the Cold War, the sort of just post-Desert Storm moment, the rise of the NAFTA era of globalization, how does that give rise to this intense sense that that the borders that that are supposed to keep Americans safe, not just the borders with Mexico, but in this case more so the racial perimeters internal to the United States that make segregated suburbanized metropolises what they are, that these racial borders, class borders, were porous and thus exposing people to danger. This is coming, this State of the Union address is coming in the wake of the Central Park Five case or the Exonerated Five, as they're now known. Um, you have unrest throughout New York um, in the late 1980s um, and, and uh, into the 1990s. You have obviously the Los Angeles uprising and similar incidents or similar instances that people look to as evidence of racial unrest as these borders being violated or um, traversed in, in deeply problematic ways. So the polyclass case, it, it's a clear, I think, articulation here by Bill Clinton of a certain kind of politics of whiteness and a suburban kind of politics, uh, a notion that these scenes of domesticity are now under threat, maybe in new ways, as the Cold War order uh, or the Cold War era has come to a close. Now the global sphere, I suppose, is is more secure or the United States' place in the the globe as as a hegemon, perhaps, is is more secure. There are nevertheless new incidents or new threats that are presenting themselves. And these must be reckoned with. And Clinton is arguing, again, that it is the carceral state that needs to reckon with these things. And, you know, polyclass is, I think, being instrumentalized here, you know, as this paradigmatic white young victim. And, of course, the case is incredibly tragic. And, and some of it, meaning some of the, the kind of political attention to her case can be attributed to the activism of her father. But Clinton, the fact that he's placing this in a very um, central position in his State of the Union speech suggests that he definitely knows what he's doing. He is playing mode of politics or a type of politics that he had been playing uh, for quite some time, uh, whether it was through Ricky Ray Rector or the um, Sister Soldier, right? Um, he is playing dog whistling, right? Um, and it's it may not be explicit racially, right? But um, he he is most certainly playing certain notes that will play well with uh, a kind of tough on crime uh, or law and order uh, set. Stepping back about a decade, the, the disappearances of two Des Moines Register paper boys in, in Iowa, Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin, in 1982 and then 84, were, were these key moments in the panic. Did the very image of an idealized Midwestern small town, Heartland America, like the image with, with Polly Class of, of peaceful and orderly upright suburbs, did those operate in a similar way to those of the inno innocent photographs of missing boys in that they almost invite dark fantasies of their subversion? Did did Iowa, as this like iconically real America white space, 
operate within this broader dynamic whereby segregation and racism automatically create a paranoia that racial boundary lines will be violated by the other? Yeah, absolutely. I think Iowa most certainly serves that role uh, in the national imagination to the extent that there is such a, an imagination. But you see this expressed in um, by James Gannon, who is the, the editor of the Des Moines Register at the time as uh, Johnny Gosh goes missing uh, in 1982 and Eugene Martin goes missing in 1984. But he argues, uh, or this is the, the claim that he's making in this editorial that was published right after Martin went missing, uh, here in the normally safe and sane heartland of middle America, where clean living, neighborliness, and a sense of security are supposed to prevail, a sinister shadow darkens our doorways and our lives. And he is juxtaposing Des Moines with other sites that are very clearly kind of coded as non-white spaces. So he's saying uh, we should not cede the streets to the shadowy threat of terror as residents in, he's citing Detroit, Newark, or Chicago have. So he's very clearly kind of gesturing to what you were talking about there, the notion that these sites should be exempt from this kind of um, tragedy, and they should be exempt from these sorts of sites because basically they are all white and the people who live there are good citizens, right? They, they're, they live clean, uh, whatever that means, you know, and the notion is that there is this shadow that is beginning to shatter uh, that ideal. And yeah, I think it's very clearly uh, situated in this notion of the Midwest as a white space, as an innocent space. And I argue... And like all suburbs everywhere are sort of, sort of, I think, attempting to recapitulate the Midwest on the fringes of of East Coast or West Coast or wherever, urban areas. Like pastoralism that's informed by the iconic Midwest. Right, right. And I mean, I think Gosh and Martin very much embody that uh, notion of, and who knows if they actually kind of were this way, but they are, I think, presented as all-American. They are paper boys, you know, they're white, uh, they are middle class, um, they live in, you know, comfortable neighborhoods. And the fact that they are both snatched, uh, presumably while they are delivering their papers, that has a certain kind of, that, that resonates with a, a broad swath of the American population. And it's um, an idea that I think is ready-made for this kind of law and order politicking that, that James Gannon is very much um, engaging in and that Ronald Reagan also engages in when he visits uh, Cedar Rapids in Iowa and his and speech talks is about, remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I found this speech and I thought, oh, I mean, this expresses everything that I, um, I thought was the case in, in these cases, right? Um, he is definitely giving voice to all of these anxieties, which are most certainly kind of uh, rising out of this sense of aggrieved whiteness, um, of, of class anxiety or, or you know, uh, status anxiety. And yeah, the notion that other sites, you know, other urban sites um, and the people that inhabit those sites are kind of transgressing uh, certain uh, boundaries and threatening 
uh, a way of life that is that is sacred. Yeah, the full sweep of the the speech that that you quote at length is is remarkable, you know, starts, you know, by glorifying the story of the prairie's white settlement. And then that how went on to, to foster, quote, values of faith, family, neighborhood, and good hard work. Values that he then stated must be protected against the threat of crime, which in turn, impl- at least implicitly, requires that Midwestern values prevail over big city elite moral relativism, you know, values that can clearly identify what is right and what is wrong. This idea that that basic ability to discern morality against immor- versus immorality has is in crisis. He's kind of talking about postmodernism here and pushing against it and saying that there are such things as as good and bad and right and wrong. And this kind of moral relativism that he seems to be identifying is obviously deeply troubling. And we need to kind of stand up for the values that are ostensibly kind of embodied in this space, this this white space. And he's talking about, I mean, he's totally kind of sanitizing, you know, um, Indian removal or just papering it over, you know, saying, uh, the pioneers began to settle here. You know, um, this was o- it was just pr- it was open prairie. <laughs> this was open prairie, right? Nobody lived here. Uh, Yankees, Germans, Swedes, Norwegians, and immigrants from many other nations. Uh, so you know, <laughs> it, it's kind of this very clear kind of nod to the fact that this is a good white space and it needs to be protected from those who are threatening it um, by, you know, through their moral relativism, through their, I don't know, supposed understanding of child snatching and child abuse as good or, um, you know, morally question, uh, morally fine. So, yeah, it's a, it really is a remarkable speech. Yeah. One, one thing that jumped out at me from the child safety crusaders you write about that's very true today as well, is that they were anti-American in this way that often pervades American conservatism, claiming to love America while being incredibly caustic about denigrating the actually existing America that we live in. One Iowa state senator said, quote, we live in a sick and rotten society that is getting sicker and rottener every day. I don't know what's happened in the United States, but it has become more animalistic, not more humanistic in recent years. Another Iowan said, quote, this is one sick country. Our morals and spiritual values are practically non-existent. When are tougher laws going to be made for the crime of molesting children? Uh, you know, it, it, this reminds me of after September 11th, when when Pat Robertson said that America's tolerance for abortion and, and gay sex had brought 9-11 upon the country. John and Ravay Walsh testified before the Senate, quote, we have been classified in the papers and by many people and in interviews with our friends as an all-American family. I don't know what that means, but I do know that prior to this incident with Adam, we were great believers in the United States of America. I have traveled throughout the world and seen the misery that people who live in other countries exist in and under the oppression that many of them labor. My beliefs in this American system have been shaken to the core. How is this right-wing anti-Americanism attacking the America that exists in the name of an imperiled or bygone real America? How has that shaped everything from the story you tell to really like Trumpism and Q anon today? It seems as if you can't resolve this tension that you know folks like John Walsh or Rave Walsh or any of these individuals are lambasting. Uh, or demonizing the very country that they are supposed to love with all their hearts. 
And yet what they're really kind of pining for, I think, is an America that didn't exist, um, but that nevertheless was kind of visible for a certain segment of the population or was experienced by a certain segment of the population. So um, this is, I think, a clear kind of uh, endorsement of kind of early Cold War moment uh, where a lot of people still kind of in which a lot of people are still kind of or to which a lot of people are still beholden or uh, tethered. So I think that's one way in which you could resolve this tension. They are imagining a, a white middle class America and that any any individual who seeks to maybe challenge that or to simply point out the fact that this is a nation that is built on dispossession and on inequality in many respects, um, that is, that's a threat to uh, everything that they have known, the, the American way of life. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine, which you probably figured out by now. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just your favorite source of online commentary, but also long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly, and it runs at around 130 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 50,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive online. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash dig Jacobin, all in lowercase. One of the most striking parts, relatedly a striking part of the story you tell, is that this tough on crime populist politics, they, 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 were, they were pro-law and order, calling for a police crackdown, but also mounted the scathing and quasi-vigilante critique of law enforcement as uncaring and inept, which was part of this broader victim rights movement in the wake of the defendants' rights revolution that was portrayed as coddling criminals. G- given what we we have today with, with Trump and Blue Lives Matter, with, with the cop really becoming the iconic figure of white reaction, what do we learn about this period of, of law and order politics by understanding this sort of anti-cop current that was so prevalent that portrayed law enforcement not as heroic first responders, but instead as lazy public sector workers. What, is, what does that reveal about how the libertarian critique of the state has proven so amenable to the rise of mass incarceration? Yeah, I think in the remarks of, of John Walsh and others, there is this sense that law enforcement has kind of buckled under the pressure of the civil rights movement and other sorts of uh, critiques of state power. And for that reason, it needs to be addressed. I mean, these, these inadequacies need to be addressed. And 
that becomes, I think, a really potent mode for, for John Walsh and for others who are actually seeking um, uh, protection for their presumed way of life. They, they want that order to be shored up. Um, and they feel as if they are being wronged. They are being, um, they are being slighted because there is greater attention being paid to defendants' due process and, and other sorts of um, protections, right, for, for those who stand accused. So I think the, the notion that the police need to get tougher becomes very key to the rise of mass incarceration. There need to be more cops, people are saying. They need to be less concerned with not violating the, the civil rights or civil, civil liberties of, of bad guys. Um, and I think a lot of this attention, yes, is focused on local officials. So John Walsh specifically is concerned with Hollywood police, Hollywood, Florida police, and according to him, their mishandling of his son's case. But as you noted, I think a lot of this gets conflated with or kind of placed under a larger anti-statism that is directed at the federal level. There's a sense that there are just a bunch of lazy, bumbling bureaucrats who are preventing local law enforcement or uh, other officials from actually doing their jobs and doing it effectively. And this is kind of what is the impetus for or the rationale behind uh, the Missing Children Act of 1982 and the Missing Children's Assistance Act of 1984. These are federal laws that are seeking to, or at least this is the the justification, uh, seeking to facilitate the search for missing children to unshackle uh, police and allow them to to investigate these cases and also to to mobilize the Department of Justice um, in the pursuit of these cases. Uh, Even though the Department of Justice is initially kind of skeptical um, or hesitant uh, when it comes to this sort of thing because they recognize it's not necessarily feasible for um, federal officials to be involved in every single missing child case since there are hundreds of thousands of of reports of missing children in any given year. Uh, Most of those are totally innocuous. Um, They're, you know, misunderstandings. They are, um, you know, lost, uh, temporarily lost children or injured children. They don't mark this tremendous crisis that needs to be addressed immediately. And yet that's how the discourse is um, uh, being presented. So I think that kind of underpins a lot of the movement, the notion that uh, people are being failed by their elected officials, uh, by local law enforcement, but most of all by the the federal government. And as mass incarceration becomes uh, ratchets up, the the police become, yes, this this force through which a lot of white grievance politics uh, are articulated. Part of the panic over law enforcement's indifference or inattention to, to abducted missing children was it was suffused to a surprising extent with anxiety over the commercialization and corporatization of American life, including this, I think, frequently repeated but very misleading talking point that the FBI had an inventory for missing or stolen property, but not missing or stolen children. According to the Walsh's quote, 
the priorities of this country are in some disorder. Or Florida Republican Senator Paula Hawkins, quote, when a car, a firearm, a boat, or even a refrigerator is reported stolen in this country, a description of it is circulated nationwide almost immediately. I wish I could say that the same system was as effectively used to locate our children. Do we value these material possessions more than our own children? Or Dan Rather, quote, some parents now are asking the government to give murdered children the same consideration it gives stolen cars. Noreen Gosh on Donahue claimed that an FBI agent had told her that the Bureau valued missing, ch- missing rich kids more. Why and how did these anxieties shape the child safety panic, particularly given that the panic was so quickly and thoroughly commercialized, ironically? Just massive numbers of private sector partnerships. Uh, There was fingerprinting, dental chart collecting, trailways buses offering runaway youth free trips home, initiatives from Quality Inn, American Airlines, Safeway, Kmart, McGruff, the crime-fighting dog, which I'm sure many of my listeners remember. I don't know if he's still around today. Child protection safety kits from the moral majority, businesses selling alarms that would go off if children got too far away. What accounts for this schizophrenic anti-commercialism and commercialization dynamic. Yeah, I haven't really thought of that in in those terms. Um, You know, there is this kind of anti-materialist or anti-materialistic kind of sensibility that is motoring some of these child safety crusaders. They feel as if the United States is privileging inanimate objects over children. And meanwhile, they are embracing or at least kind of tacitly accepting assistance from corporations, other private sector entities in this hunt for missing children. Yeah, I don't know how to account for that exactly, um, but I think that the, the former kind of component here does speak to this larger concern about America going adrift and losing sight of of its essence, uh, of its core um, being. Um, that, things, that things are valued for their, their monetary value rather than their kind of moral value, which is almost like a left. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that that's kind of, but I don't know if I would situate those sorts of critiques there. I mean, I, I, maybe, um, but I, I don't sense that that's kind of what they were getting at. Um, I think they... It just kind of goes to or kind of furthers this project of uh, kind of portraying their cause as a losing cause or trying to don the the, the garb of victimization. And, and that's kind of a, a core feature of the victims' rights movement, I think, um, to, to constantly view everything as um, kind of a consequence of the fact that they are downtrodden, they are dispossessed. And you, know, you see this in the fact that defendants' rights are kind of lamented by um, a lot of individuals in the victims' rights movement. There's this notion that, yeah, the, you know, due process is only so valuable and uh, really the criminal justice system should be protecting victims and, you know, defendants' rights kind of be damned. So this, I think, is in keeping with that, saying that we are basically being treated like Uh, worse than, uh, you know, cars or inanimate objects. And the child, you know, the child which should have this elevated position in American society or in uh, the the world more broadly, uh, 
it is being or the child is being kind of uh, discarded or um, completely and, and utterly abandoned. Well, it, it, if the critique is that cash is ruling everything around them in the greedy 80s with the rise of neoliberalism and Reaganism, it's not a, it's not an incorrect one, but revealingly it's expressed through this moral panic. Yeah, and there are a lot of moments in this movement or, you know, a lot of rhetorical flourishes that these crusaders uh, kind of engage in that, you know, you can tell that they're onto something. And, you know, you mentioned this kind of anti-Americanism. You're not, they're not wrong necessarily to be critiquing the United States, um, but perhaps they're critiquing it for the wrong reasons. And they are also perhaps making this sort of critique of, of Reaganism and, and the commodification of everything, this uh, embrace of, of materialism over or everything, or kind of the, the suffusion of, of um, material goods. Um, that, that's an understandable critique, or it is a, uh, an appealing one. Uh, but it's being deployed for really nefarious purposes. Perhaps, I think, likely the most high-profile way that the, a commercial product was was used to to combine this sort of like wholesome and the perverse in this really jarring way was was milk cartons. Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin were the first missing young people to have their images emblazoned on milk cartons, starting with a local Iowa dairy and then getting picked up by a, a larger milk company, and then it went national. And then it became almost a, a joke, I think, by a decade later. But like, how did milk cartons, which brings a staple from a farm to the family gathered around the breakfast table, come to convey this daily horror show in the midst of ordinary, everyday wholesomeness? And, and what impact did that have? Yeah. So I, I read it as kind of a script, you know, I mean, because the milk cartons were so ubiquitous, I think by some estimates, something like 3 billion were circulated or, or disseminated um, in, in the 1980s, in, in the mid 1980s specifically. Um, so I view them as a way in which families at the breakfast table or some other communal space, some other wholesome space uh, could engage in a conversation over something that was, or about something that was just so grim. And I argue that it kind of contributed to this larger sort of regime or this larger kind of apparatus or set of mechanisms by which people were constantly confronted with this threat that was not really that pervasive at all, because the implication here is that it is children being abducted by strangers, then that kind of uh, occasions a discussion about that very thing. And some of the milk cartons... And a child at the breakfast table is looking at the milk carton saying, seeing, you know, a boy that maybe that looks somewhat like him. Saying, yeah. Mommy, yeah, why is that boy on the side of a milk carton? Exactly. And it's, I think, forced some people, and I never grew up with these milk cartons, but... Um, it forced, I'm, I'm sure, some children to say, well, I guess that might be me or, you know, I might be next. And that may explain some of the statistics that I noted earlier where, you know, something like 44% of, of children are saying in some studies 
that it is likely or very likely that they will become missing children. So you, they are constantly being confronted with, um, kind of terrorized with this notion that they might be next, um, that, that this is a problem that is touching their lives and in invading kind of these really intimate spaces, these wholesome spaces that are supposed to be safe. Basically, it's telling them you're not safe. You have a chapter on an exceptional high-profile case that that proves the rule in terms of how innocent the image of innocent childhood was raced and classed. In Atlanta, between 1979 and 81, 29 young, poor, working-class black boys and men were abducted and killed. And just as in cases of white disappearance, these stoked fears over child safety and over the reproduction of future generations, but they did so in a form particular to the black experience through the fear of black genocide, particularly this amid this continuing bleak reality for poor black people in Atlanta, amid the jubilation of a rising political class allied with corporate elites running the so-called city too busy to hate. What are the commonalities and differences in these white and black missing children cases and in terms of the way they functioned in politics and society, and what what does that reveal about how the stranger danger panic was raced and classed during this moment of ascendant right reaction? Because revealingly, you know, the, though the Atlanta abductions and murders did receive widespread attention, they never became iconic the way that the missing white middle class boys did. Yeah, there was tremendous national attention on these cases, but. It was only really after a year uh, that local activists had really sought to get this news of these cases out. They had struggled mightily to get uh, Atlanta police and the mayor's office to, to really consider these to be interrelated cases and to uh, marshal resources to, to address uh, what was understood to be uh, a growing threat or a looming threat that was facing primarily uh, black boys, uh, young men, uh, but also a, a couple of, of young girls who were uh, included on the list, uh, as, as officials called it. Uh, but once this did reach um, certain echelons or, or, or did attain a certain level of visibility, it was a national story. However, as you noted, it's telling that it's not... It wasn't, there was no uh, kind of single individual or single uh, missing child or murdered child in Atlanta who assumed as much importance as an Aton Pates or an Adam Walsh um, or a Jacob Wetterling. Um, and I would argue that, you know, even though there is increased attention in the 21st century to the case or these cases, um, I think a lot of people would be hard pressed to even name uh, any of the the individuals who were kidnapped and slain in Atlanta. And the the cases, I situated them, as you noted, in the book because, or I wrote a chapter on these cases because they are at once uh, in keeping with the, the larger crusade for child safety, but also quite distinct from these other cases in that, as far as I can tell, this is really the only instance in which children of color are really featured 
it's almost exclusively white children uh, of a certain age, um, namely younger children, even though the majority of missing children, again, are runaways and they tend to be teenagers. But nevertheless, this did capture a lot of uh, headlines, a lot of interest, and a lot of the anxieties expressed by parents and locals in Atlanta aligned with or intersected with some of the critiques that people like John Walsh and Noreen Gosh and other child safety crusaders or bereaved parents were articulating. And these concerns, again, kind of were located in or focused on the, the family. And I would argue that these claims are a little more legitimate, um, a little more viable, given that, yes, there are concerns about Black genocide, about the sanctity and stability of the African-American family, uh, in large part because of white supremacist violence, the ascendance of uh, the right. Um, you know, there's great fear of, of Reaganism. Though the idealized imagined Black family and, and Black neighborhood as an extended Black family as it had existed before the Civil Rights Revolution was in some ways resonant with white conservative family values, critiques, though also fundamentally different. Right. And you see people like Maynard Jackson and Lee Brown, leaders in Atlanta, actually kind of pining for this presumed bygone age of the black family, this kind of golden age of the black family, and insisting that in order to keep these communities safe, African-Americans in Atlanta needed to adhere to family values. And of course, this is kind of a very, yes, a conservative talking point, something that resonates with white conservatives. And it also seems to legitimize um, a lot of critiques of the black family articulated by Moynihan and, and others, right, saying that, um, you know, the black family is not stable. And this is one reason why African-Americans uh, face certain issues, right, certain problems. If they could only kind of replicate the heteronormative white middle class family, then a lot of these issues would uh, resolve themselves. And I think a lot of those discourses are evident in, in what happens in Atlanta. But there's a similar kind of critique that emerges. Uh, Camille Bell, who is the mother of Youssef Bell, who's one of the children kidnapped and slain in Atlanta. She and others are very critical of leaders like Lee Brown, who goes on to, to be the mayor of Houston, my hometown, uh, and also Maynard Jackson, the first African-American mayor of Atlanta. They essentially are arguing that uh, Maynard Jackson and others are find themselves in this biracial coalition that seeks to, uh, no matter the cost, kind of preserve this notion of Atlanta as the city too busy to hate, a place that's great for business. The story Matt Lassiter tells in The Silent Majority, in which dig listeners can find discussed in the archives, as an aside. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and there's also a, a relatively new book uh, called, I think it's The Legend of the Black Mecca by Maurice Hobson. He writes a lot about that. So Camille Bell and others are basically saying that Jackson and uh, Brown and others are not concerned about black children. They are simply seeking to kind of 
brush this under the rug. They don't want this kind of attention on Atlanta because it is antithetical to their vision for Atlanta and also the vision of, of white businessmen. Uh, primarily men, obviously, and uh, this is disconcerting for for them. So Camille Bell is saying, you know, you need to actually uh, reckon with what is going on here. Um, and a lot of folks who are veterans of the the classical civil rights movement make similar critiques. Uh, Ralph David Abernathy and and others, they're saying that there's not adequate attention to uh, on what is happening in Atlanta and. A lot of this is racialized or there's a class dimension to it. You know, I think Abernathy is shown on national television saying that if this were uh, 20, however many uh, white children, um, that the federal government will be down here. Uh, so it's there are critiques that are leveled uh, against local government uh, officials in, in Atlanta or in the, the broader Atlanta area. And also federal officials. The, the concern is that the, the FBI and other federal agencies are not really interested in what is going on in Atlanta. They don't mind that um, all these black children are being slaughtered. And they're, again, to kind of get to the point of that I was making earlier concerning kind of the, the fact that these are kind of viable or, or legitimate claims you know, the, this is uh, black people have long been kind of assaulted by and, um, you know, subject to this sort of violence, right, by by white reactionaries, um, white racists. And so the fears that are being expressed here uh, make total sense, um, especially given the ascendance or the, the resurgence of the Klan and other white power actors, um, as Kathleen Ballou and others have shown you know, at this moment. So, and Reaganism, of course, ascendant. So it, it makes some sense. And in that way, it kind of diverges from what, uh, you know, white child safety crusaders like John Walsh are saying, because they are also making a claim or they're asserting that the white family is kind of facing this existential threat, which of course is kind of a ludicrous claim. And I don't think it really kind of squares with the reality. Um, whereas I think a lot of these black families uh, had every right to to really be concerned about what was happening. The, the black Atlanta youth, you're right, were, were definitely treated differently in the media and that they were described as street hustlers or streetwise terms that associated them with the street and so robbed them of the innocence of a middle-class family and home. How was it that the you know, truly rough conditions facing poor and working class youth were used to promote the normalization of death and suffering rather than sympathy, let, let alone solidarity. Yeah, I think it's part of this broader neoliberal process of, of individualizing poverty or suffering, essentially blaming the victim. Um, so the children who were snatched and slain in Atlanta, many of them were running errands or performing little tasks for money because they were poor and working class and they were scraping by, you know, they, they were doing what they could to survive. And a lot of the national discourse kind of centered on the presumed failings of these communities 
and the presumed failings of the families in these communities. And this kind of, again, gestures back to, to what Moynihan uh, said and what others kind of adopted as well, or, or the, the sorts of threads that they were, that coursed through a lot of their rhetoric. So the victims in Atlanta were understood to be kind of, they, they were at the very least complicit in their own suffering and complicit in their own deaths. And I think a really egregious way in which this manifests is in the suggestion that some of those who were killed were part of uh, a gay sex ring and actually had elected to participate in, in these activities and they were not kind of coerced into these activities. They were known apparently to associate with certain individuals who uh, had been implicated in in these sorts of uh, affairs. And in this way, street hustling could be kind of a capacious term that could cover anything from, you know, picking up some money, uh, helping people bring their groceries to the car front to uh, sex work. Yeah. Turning trips. Right, right. Yeah. And of course, that suggestion never uh, occurred in, in the Aton Pates case, even when people were speculating, you know, that perhaps he had been abducted and recruited or kind of uh, folded into a, a child sex ring, or this doesn't happen in, in Johnny Gosh's case or uh, Eugene Martin's case. You know, there were also suggestions that or rumors that they had been uh, folded into a child sex ring, but no one ever said, as far as I can tell, that they more or less they were asking for it, right? And that's kind of what the suggestion is here, I think, in, in Atlanta, uh, the idea is that, well, the family structure is, is so weak and, you know, there are no kind of morals or, or no, um, no values that are preventing people from uh, participating in these sorts of behaviors. And, you know, what did these folks expect if they were turning tricks or even just running these pretty innocuous errands? You know, they were setting themselves up. And so, yes, they are streetwise. They are street hustlers. Even though, you know, a, a kind of irony that I point out is that um, Eugene Gosh and, uh, excuse me, um, Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin were delivering papers for money, right, at the same time. And there was never a suggestion that, well, you know, what were they expecting? The hustling papers on the street. Yeah. Right, right. Um, your book analyzes key laws passed as part of the child protection regime, including those that created sex offender, sex offender registries, but also laws that were that listeners will have heard of that were key to the war on crime more generally. The, the, the three strikes laws on both the federal level and more consequentially in California, and also the, the infamous 1994 Clinton crime bill. People are uncomfortable talking about sex crimes or sex offenses or sexual harm as scholars prefer to term it because there's such a deeply entrenched taboo or uh, stigma um, associated with this sort of thing. And by focusing on um, sex offender registries as uncomfortable or often obscured as these things are, or as often obscured or ignored as sex offender laws more generally are, uh, we see that mass incarceration is not this simple uh, kind of, there's not a monocausal explanation for mass incarceration. Um, you cannot point to, as some scholars I think have, the drug war and say that this is the principal culprit because of the existence of people 
um, who maybe have committed really dreadful acts or have really harmed individuals, they're not found guilty or not deemed to be uh, responsible for committing uh, so-called victimless crimes such as drug possession or what have you. Uh, They have committed harm. And yet um, it should make, I think, everybody uncomfortable to know that about 1 million people are listed on sex offender registries and their uh, registries themselves are not effective um, at combating sexual harm because in large measure these focus people's energies on, again, the wrong culprits, strangers, right? So the very uh, structure of sex offender registries and this entire apparatus that governs sex crimes or sexual harm, uh, it places the threat outside of the home and it encourages individuals to kind of look at maps or to to find these culprits and to assume that this is exactly where the potential sources of harm are rather than inside the home or inside the church or inside the school, uh, which is, uh, these are exactly the sites of of sexual harm. These are where uh, acts of sexual harm are far more likely to take place. So I think by understanding the child safety panic and the the kind of um, scare uh, or the the, the fright and fear that drove a lot of um, this uh, movement and this push for these laws, I think that kind of illuminates uh, these dimensions of the carceral state that many folks, I think, are uncomfortable reckoning with. You write that, quote, the late 20th century child protection scare never truly died, in part, as we've been discussing just now, because that moment of acute moral panic became institutionalized both in law and in politics, making the child safety regime a core facet of the carceral state. But as we you know, briefly touched on earlier, it has also taken on a truly bizarre but perhaps inevitable turn, becoming a central interpretive lens through which people make sense of Trump-era politics. And I'm talking, of course, about Pizzagate and QAnon. How can we better understand these seemingly absolutely wild conspiracy theories if we understand them as not just sui generis freak shows emerging from the political fringe, but instead rooted in the most ordinary and bipartisan American politics imaginable? Yeah, I think Americans are afraid of sex in many ways, um, and they are easily whipped up into a frenzy over anything that is deemed threatening to an imagined child. Um, And I think we've talked a lot about exactly what this child looks like, but I think it's easy, a little too easy for, you know, liberals or anybody who is in opposition to, to Trumpism to point at QAnon and say, this is ludicrous, this is baseless. You know, all those things are true, but in many ways they reveal, or this entire phenomenon reveals something that is at the core of the American experience. And unless folks are actually willing to, I think, address what I just talked about in my previous response, um, the, the sheer scale of this legal infrastructure 
designed to address sexual harm and the many, many lives that have been ruined because of that, unless people grapple with that and reckon with that, then I think any sort of criticism of QAnon as fantastical and, and harmful as that entire conspiracy theory is, I think it's kind of uh, hypocritical and um, doesn't necessarily fully understand, as you indicated, just how bipartisan, just how universal and ubiquitous this sort of sex panic, kind of fear-based politics is, uh, whether it is QAnon, whether it is uh, the Alex Morse controversy, whether it is the, the cuties controversy related to, to the Netflix program, uh, or just, which the, is a, which is a Q related controversy. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I mean, all of these to that on that score are interrelated. So I think that perhaps a larger discussion about sex panic and the need to kind of get the carceral state out of, uh, this sort of affair or just, you know, to abolish the carceral state entirely, um, I think that, that that should be the goal in any such conversation, not just a simple uh, repudiation of those who happen to believe uh, the QAnon conspiracy theory. Well, with Q, I think that the ideas that you, write, that you write about from the 80s, that the liberal state was indifferent to protecting children, that was very mainstream. That was almost, you know, that was a core facet of this hegemonic discourse. Same with the idea that the culture was so obscene and, and crassly sexual that that was putting children at risk. Those two things just seem to have moved a bit further down the line to become now with Q that the liberal state and the liberal cultural elites are directly and on a grand scale preying on children. Like that they're the ones orchestrating the pedophilia. Right. It is the Democratic Party, right? Yeah. And I think something that's like particularly remarkable now is that Q leaders are now using the hashtag save the children as a way to mainstream Q beyond the Trumpist right. And their efforts are getting credulously picked up by local TV news. Yeah. And of course, it, I think, goes back to this notion of the unassailable nature of any politics that uh, relate to childhood vulnerability or the vulnerability of certain children. So, yeah, I think it was inevitable that, and th these sorts of concerns about child sex trafficking predate Q um, by, by many, many years. But I think, you know, uh, Brandy uh, Zodrozhny, I think you pronounce her name, is how you pronounce her name, and, and others have kind of noted how terms like save our children or save the kids or save the children serve to kind of launder um, and, and legitimate QAnon uh, because who could be opposed to any such effort to, to save the kids, to, to protect children from these nefarious actors, in the, whether it's in the Democratic Party or uh, elsewhere, kind of in the shadows. And I think the same thing happened in the late 1970s and early 1980s as folks were very hesitant to, to question the, the really ridiculous statistics that were being bandied about by child safety crusaders because they might be associated with those who were ostensibly snatching children. Another thought on this is, wasn't the image of endangered childhood always something similar to the icon of the same lost America that Trump 
has pledged to make great again, to resurrect, to reinstantiate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clearly racialized. Um, and it's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of attempts, I think, to distinguish Trump from a Reagan or from a W or HW. Uh, but I think you look at the, the speech that Reagan delivered in Cedar Rapids in 1984, and it could have been a Trump speech. I think, I mean, probably he delivered it uh, a little more gracefully, but it hits all the same notes of kind of whiteness under siege by uh, nefarious urban forces, you know, the streets need to be protected or the streets need to be cleaned up. Nefarious urban forces, morally lax, relativistic liberals, Hollywood, you know, maybe not in that speech, but Hollywood perverts. <laughs> yeah, settler colonialism, all all that good stuff. So the last question, you're sympathetic to the free-range youth movement, but also describe it as pretty fundamentally middle-class and, and pretty politically limited. And it's certainly not a big enough politics to attack the entirety of this problem as the carceral, the existence of the carceral state, QAnon, Trump's law and order campaign, all of that. What would a freedom politics for youth in particular, and more generally a politics that freed us all from our obsession with child safety look like? And how might policies concretely work to prevent harm instead of just obsessively punishing it and attempting to guard against it? Yeah, I think it would have to start with a reevaluation of precisely what the state's responsibility to children is. It is not, from where I sit, to, to cage them or to cage those who might do them harm. Uh, it should be to protect them from these more quotidian, uh, mundane threats, which are far more ubiquitous um, and which actually are related to the sexual harm that many children face. And so I'm talking obviously about hunger and poverty and educational inequality and, and housing insecurity and other such structural issues. Um, if the state were to really address those and actually construct a, a safety net that would assist uh, children who were vulnerable in these ways, then that would have a great effect, I think, on alleviating the threat of, of sexual harm uh, that a lot of people face in, in homes, in, in churches, in, in schools. The state is not interested in doing that or hasn't been interested in doing that for quite some time. Um, so that would need to kind of be addressed. There would also need to be, I think, a more honest approach to to sex and and uh, an actual evaluation of these sorts of sex panics and and the true harm that that the panics themselves cause. Our society is so inundated with these sorts of panics and is so enraptured by them that I think that that's a, a really tall order. But yeah, I think it would require an actual reckoning with just how ubiquitous sex panics like the ones we've been discussing are, moral panics like these, and the true harm that they do, um, and a true kind of sense of or uh, reckoning with what role sex should play in the lives of, of young people, of, of all Americans, right? Um, so rather than criminalizing 
any and all sex that is deemed um, problematic. I think that Americans should come to a broader understanding of, of exactly what role, what, how healthy sex, what it looks like in, in the lives of all people, rather than penalizing those who are deemed to uh, transgress these boundaries. Well, Paul Renfro, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Paul Renfro is a professor of history at Florida State University. He is the co-editor of Growing Up America, Youth and Politics Since 1945, and the author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after asking, on what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family, based? On capital, on private gain. In its completely developed form, this family only exists amongst the bourgeoisie. But this state of things finds its complement in the practical absence of the family among the proletarians and in public prostitution. While other podcasts similarly interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com, where we have every single episode organized by guest and by topic. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or ever, please rate and review us. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us on Twitter, on the phone, in your outdoor, semi-socially distant hangouts, whatever. And please do find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Mm-hmm.